Hi, I'm sitting here with the lovely Shalina. And I'm sitting here with the lovely Neka. Welcome to What's Your Safe Word? A podcast about declarations of resistance by us, Women at the Center. So, what are we drinking? Well, since we're still physically distancing and doing this over Zoom, I today am drinking uh, rose gold berry soaked cider, and it's from Niagara Cider Company. That's what I'm drinking. What are you drinking, Neka? I'm drinking red. So everybody that knows me, I can hear the gasp. I'm drinking red. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you, Amanda. Simply <laughs> sound effects. I'm drinking red because I have no alcohol left in my house, and this is the only thing I could find. And it's a Wolf Blast Cabernet Sauvignon 2018. So we shall see. Nice. Yeah. I'm drinking. We some. We have wine. No, none cold because I was um, forgetful. So I'm drinking a twisted tea, hard iced tea in the peach flavor. It's really good. <laughs> Very nice. The quotes, the, the the ratings at the end of it. Oh, yeah. So let's do a check-in. Okay. Do you want to start or do you want me to start? You start. You start. Okay. I'll start with mental noise because let's get that out of the way. Um, I have a lot of mental noise. I, I have a lot of mental noise. So last week for the last podcast, I shared my chair with Kara and Kara and Naka had a really in-depth, important conversation around everything that's going on about Black Lives Matters and the police brutality that is irrehensible, irreprehensible, reprehensible. Mm -hmm. And so it's just continued. And it's like, what, what do we do? (laughs) Like, like at what point does, do we take down the entire world? Do you know what I mean? And so like, I'm going to say Elijah McClain. And I think that with his name, I want to talk about like the intersection of blackness and also like mental health and how that's always taken up in this like very violent way. Mm -hmm. Um, I used to work at um, a a organization that had group homes and I worked at my house. uh, There were three, we had four individuals all together. Three of them were black men. One was a white man. And I was out with the white man one day and he was kind of like, going off a little bit in the, we were very close to home and he was getting very anxious and he, he was kind of yelling things out to people that were passing by and they kind of just like looked at him and were just a little weary and then kind of said to me like, are you okay? And I was like, yep, everything's fine. Continue with your lives. And then like we went home. So another time, Uh, I was out walking in the park with two of the black residents and they were walking uh, through this park and these white guys were trying to get their attention and say hello to them. I'm not really sure what their intention was, um, but this happens a lot. And so one of the black men is nonverbal. The other black man couldn't like, wouldn't even comprehend what he was, what these people were saying. And anyway, so they didn't answer. And we kept walking through the park. 
These guys were like hollering, hollering, hollering. No one's answering them. And then they started getting aggressive as if the, the, the men I were, were with were being disrespectful. And I had to turn around and say like, listen, like we're from this agency. This man is nonverbal. This man can't comprehend your hello. And I'm not sure why you're getting aggressive because these people aren't answering you. And like I had said hi. So that was the other thing. So actually when they first said it, I was like, hi. And so I acknowledged them, but my acknowledgement was not enough. And so anyway, there, there really is like an intersection with blackness and mental health. And I think we see that with this death of like Elijah. And so I've been thinking about that a lot because that was like a job that I had a couple of years ago. And I worked with those men for so long and we would get stared at so often, especially where I live in Orangeville. And their mom came one day, one of their moms came one day and was talking about how she gets stared at all the time in Orangeville because she's black and does, does that um, individual. And I was like, oh, it's so interesting because like, is it, is it his blackness or is it the fact that like maybe people can see that he has special needs? And I think it's definitely like the combination, the intersectionality of both of those identities. And so I've been thinking about that a lot hearing um, Elijah's story. I think the other thing that has been mental noise for me and the like has been very apparent is one of our podcasts, I did debrief this with the team, but one of our podcasts um, called Unbelievable, we did a really <laughs> in-depth conversation about police and police brutality and things like that. And I left that conversation feeling like maybe we had gone too far or said too much about police because I know how we all got there and I know why we feel that way but I wasn't sure if we brought the audience along to how we got to that answer. And I had to come back, I think it was last week maybe, and say to the team like, I'm sorry. Like, I think, I don't know who I was trying to please in that conversation, but like, I'm sorry because that, what the police have done and, and even like the system that the police are a part of and everything is, it, it, it is worth that conversation. It is worth for people to hear the violence that they do. So that was definitely my mental noise and how I can show up as a white person, as a white woman who are like probably some of the most dangerous people on the planet. Um, so yeah, that's been my mental noise. Go ahead, Neka. <laughs> Thank you. Um, that I'm glad because that's a really brilliant segue to my mental noise around police. And I, I recall that conversation. Uh, and I recall your anxiety over whether we've sort of crossed some imaginary or social boundary that would then sort of trigger um, adverse reactions. And I remember as you were saying that, because I, I have nothing but respect for you, as you were saying that, I, I had to pause and say, okay, well, how valid is the concern and how much of that am I willing to take back? And I was not taken back any of it because as I said, um, that unbelievable and the, what I've seen as a black woman, what I've heard and the sort of um, mediums that I'm tapped into because of my black woman identity, 
I know that white women are not seeing, right? And that's why when all of this stuff, all of the protests that's been happening, there's a lot of white people who are feeling shock and horror at, you know, you mean this is going on? And I'm thinking, yes, it's been going on. We've been saying this, so where the fuck have you been, right? Yeah. And so my mental noise has been around police brutality and the conversation on defunding police. And the reason why it's mental noise is because how status quo, white supremacy, you know, status quo is in the middle, white supremacy is on one end, and then the do-gooders who want to, you know, come by everybody to get along are on the other. And they're missing everybody else that's on the fringes, right? All the other others, the black, black people, indigenous people who are on the other, who are actually the targets of police violence. And, and I was sort of listening to all of the conversations, reading stuff on Twitter, on LinkedIn, around what defund the police means and how those people, right, white supremacy on the far extreme and the do-gooders and ignorant on the other extreme have a very, very singular understanding of what defund the police means. And to them, it's, um, I was watching uh, a guy called Roland, shit, I can't remember his name. I'm going to send it to Amanda and I, she's going to put it on, on the thing. But it's this black guy in the States who is really quite radical, but brilliant in his analysis. And he was calling out this piece of shit, Tucker Carlson, who's this white guy on Fox News. And this black man with his podcast, with his show, was calling out Tucker Carlson and the way Tucker Carlson, this white man, had sort of structured what defund the police was. And how Tucker Carlson, the white guy, had used the defund the police as a way to sort of whip up anxiety and fear of black people and say, well, you know, if you're raped, then, and you live in your gated community and you're raped and you've got, um, you have your own private police, then that's okay for you. But the rest of us, we're living out in the world and you're raped. And if we defund the police, then, you know, who's going to come and defend you? And as I was watching that, I was thinking to myself, you, you ignoramus, because defunding the police is not about, you know, getting rid of them. It's about shifting the way the work is done. It's about reallocating budgets so that you are not given more money, more authority, more freedoms to these people who are ill-equipped, untrained, unprepared, completely devoid of sort of this human compassion or understanding of what their role is to serve and to protect. They have no ideas of it. And yet you're, you're just throwing public money away to them instead of looking at what is at the heart of public unrest, civic unrest, right? And so my mental noise is how do you explain to people, white supremacists on the left, on, well, on one extreme, and the ignoramuses and those in, in between, that what is needed is not more money to police who will become paramilitary and shoot, continue to shoot black people, men and women, or shoot people you know, for mental health checks, you, sh you come in and you come in with your fucking gun. How do you explain to people that the defunding the police is about a, a cultural shift, right? And a reallocation of resources to better you know, housing, community responses. How do you explain something that is such a fundamental human rights stuff? And I've been sort of struggling with that and trying to figure out a way to be part of the solution.
right? Be part of the education, but still to keep my anger, not in check, but raging. I still want to, I love my anger. I, I love it raging, but I recognize that there's a lot of work that needs to be done to explain to people why it is in everybody's best interest that we defund the police. So that, that's been my mental noise um, all week. Yeah. Can I, can I, can I say that I, it actually leads me to my gratitude, right? Because um, all week I have been made more physically and visibly and emotionally aware of the awesomeness of black women right and i've been doing a lot of work with and everybody you know, people may not know this but i do a lot of executive coaching and, and mentoring and my my volunteer mentoring is with young black women specifically young black women who are entrepreneurs in business but i've been doing a lot of work with black women um since the protest started and since the whole accountability of organizations and employers and and i'm speaking specifically now for the violence against women sector where a lot of white women are in positions of leadership and have not been allies to anybody but themselves right so all week i've been speaking with incredible black women you know directors coordinators supervisors as well as ceos who have been discussing with me how this this moment in time these protests the the murder of george floyd how it has allowed you know the benefit that's come from it is that it, it's allowed um a spotlight to be shone on our experiences and so how these black women are are now speaking up right and and speaking out about the microaggressions and mic macroaggressions and how they've been bottling all of this stuff right so you come to work some supervisor takes credit for your work and silences you you're a director you're in a meeting with other directors and somebody who doesn't know that you're a director but thinks that you are the fucking secretary so asks you to take notes right? and how black women just take all of this stuff in right it's like inhaling smoke you're 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 like the tree whose leaves are in, inhaling the, the carbon monoxide, not the carbon dioxide, the carbon monoxide for everybody else and then expelling oxygen for everyone. And in the meantime, it's killing you. So I am grateful, number one, that I'm, I am a black woman and I want to give a special gratitude, a very, very special gratitude to this fucking amazing woman called Kimberly Jones. And again, I'm going to put, get, ask Amanda to put the link to her six minute video. There's this amazing woman called Kimberly Jones, who's an author in the States, who gives this six minute explanation of anti-black racism and why it's sort of systemic and the social contract. And she, she an analogized it to Monopoly, right? That you're playing 400 rounds of Monopoly and every time in playing it, every time the, the other person takes all your winnings, 400 rounds. Oh, it's, it's just, it was priceless. And I, I saw that video first um, from a, uh, what is his name? Shit, it's, it's a white guy, he's a Brit who does uh, 
last week tonight or last oh know? john oliver john oliver thank you john <laughs> oliver and again we want to i want to showcase that because john oliver talked about this and played uh kimberly jones's like three minutes of her thing and he was so visibly sh shaken by what she said that, that he, he couldn't he couldn't joke about it in the end and then i actually read all the comments at the end of it and blew me away but my gratitude is to black women like kimberly jones and all the other black women that i've been speaking to this week and to myself that's, that's yeah yeah i think that's important i think that even with everything going on we see how on one hand, black women are literally the force that is literally like wreaking havoc on systems, right? Like they're the ones that are the loudest. They are the ones that are the most pissed. They're the ones that are, you know, so much is going on. And yet they're also the ones that are the most forgotten. And so absolutely, yes, black women. Um, I'm, I'm, sorry, I'm so sorry to cut you because this, this was a point her final statement on that, on Kimberly Jones's final statement was, she said that, um, and she looked in the camera and said, you better be grateful, I'm paraphrasing, that black people are only looking for equality and not revenge. Yeah. Gave me fucking goosebumps. Yeah. Gave me goosebumps. So I'm sorry, Shalina, as you were saying before I rudely interrupted. Not at all rudely, very welcomed. Um, yeah, I think that, I think that all of the stuff that you just said has definitely been on mine too. Even the difference between defunding and abolishing the police, I think that's like really important for people to think on because some, I think even Toronto, like they're having a meeting at city hall that is talking only about 10%, right? And it's like, no, 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 like we need, we need drastic change. So I'm glad that you brought that up. Um, my gratitude, my gratitude is for so many things. Like, I think I've just been having like, um, a lot of gratitude for like the universe this week or two. Um, I think that people coming into my life and people leaving my life, I think everything is just kind of happening in a way that it's supposed to. Um, so I'm really thankful for, um, the universe. I'm also thankful for we got uh, funding for um, a pilot project for our actual transformative accountability and justice initiative, which you have all heard us talk about. Um, and so we're actually going to do a pilot, one in Toronto and one in um, Renfrew County. And so I'm so grateful for that opportunity. I'm so grateful that you know, a funding body recognized the fact that this was a good idea <laughs> and trusted us to do it. And I think that um, I'm grateful for the future participants of that process because it takes a lot of power and a lot of bravery to be able to do that. So, um, yeah, I'm grateful for all of that. I'm grateful for my coworkers um, and how we push each other forward and hold each other accountable and how much of a family and community that we are. Um, I honestly couldn't be more thankful to be in the position that I am with all of you uh, and Karen, Nicole that aren't here today. So yeah, that's my gratitude.
I love that. I absolutely, absolutely echo all of that. And again, it's a beautiful segue. And listeners, believe us when we say that we, we don't plan this. We didn't plan this. Because Shalina was talking about um, the funding that we just received. That was my success. Mm. And that was going to be my, well, that is my success. And again, for the exact same reasons as Shalina um, articulated, we've spent three years, it's now three and a half years, developing, sort of engaging in research. And it was really, it was a lot. It was a lot. And then from all of that, to come up with a new, a brand new framework, right? That the, the team and I, we put our minds together and it, 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 it's, it's, it's transformational. And I know we're talking about transformative justice, but it, it really is a hugely successful uh, enterprise that we've embarked on. And to Shalina's point, for the Canadian Women's Foundation, who are funding us, for them to believe in us and to say, yeah, I think this is important. We think this is important. We're going to give you the funds to sort of test it out. I think that says a lot about, number one, you know, who they are under the leadership of their, another, again, a, a brilliant black woman, Paulette Senior. But um, it says a lot about who we are, right? And, and, and the work that we do and the authentic way that we've shown up. So I feel it is a huge success because it's actually, I think, the next step in proving, right, justifying, validating that this model will work, will change lives, will bring, out, bring about a shift. So I think that, that, yeah, that's my success of the week. And I'm going to ride it for <laughs> the next like, month, for all of July. I'm yeah. riding on my success. Yeah. My success this week is I have found a new love for plants. I don't know like what is happening. <laughs> I, we, we have like gardens outside and like Chris is the gardener. He always has been. And I cannot usually keep indoor plants alive. So like I, I've kind of hated it. And then we got plants because I started getting a little bit more into it. And I found like some cute pots. So I was like, all right, we'll just put some plants in there. Um, and I don't know if it's like because of COVID-19 and I have to have some sort of excitement around the house or something, but I'm obsessed with watching the plants grow. Like the outdoor plants, I am obsessed. I go out every day. I probably look wild to some people, but I go out every day whether I'm in my pajamas or not and like look at them and look at the buds and like see how much they've grown and see how much like, and, and try to guess when they're going to bloom and like all this stuff. And I talk about them every day to Chris. Uh, he probably thinks I've turned into a different person. Um, and we had like a couple of indoor plants and I've, and I've actually put a lot of them outside cause I put them outside for the summer. Um, but I was feeling like part of my house was naked without them. And so oh. I went out, I know I went out and got some like tropical indoor plants and I literally spent, I don't know, like two hours trying to like find the perfect spot for them, watering, you know, like just taking care of them. I, my success is that I'm able to keep plants alive now uh, after years of killing poor things. And because I've kept them alive, I have awarded myself with more plants. So that's my success. <laughs> I love that. I love that. I love that. Anybody who loves plants, I love. And you, my house, 
it's full of them. Uh, you remember the office was full of them, big ones. And I, I, I love that. And they will reward you with clean oxygen. Yes. We're yeah. There. We're there. We're there again. We're there again. This has been great. It has been. It's been great. We're going to have such a phenomenal conversation with our guest, Amy Saeed. Uh, Amy's a survivor. When she comes on, we're going to do a formal introduction. But we haven't talked about this particular subject matter, I don't think, ever. So stay tuned. Welcome to another fabulous episode of What's Your Safe Word. Today we are graced with the presence of the absolutely, absolutely brilliant and bold Amy Saeed. Um, Amy is one of our newest best friends in, in the organization absolutely. and on the podcast. She's yeah. a founder and CEO. Yeah. <laughs> She's a founder and CEO of findyourhcp.com and 15minutesaday.ca. Um, Amy is a survivor of intimate partner violence. She is also um, terminal cancer. Sorry, she's a survivor of intimate partner violence, terminal cancer, and host of her own podcast, Calm After the Storm, which uh, Shalina and I were very, very, very honored to have appeared on a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Amy spent her life um, teaching others on how to empower themselves. And what I love about her is it's not just about empowering, it's about how do you live your best life and use technology to get you to that, that space. So welcome, Amy. Thank you. And thank you guys for being on my podcast. It's actually going to be airing on Monday, uh, this coming Monday. Um, so we're super excited to ha- be able to carry that. Yay. Yeah. Yay, yay, yay. Well, today we have a topic of conversation that we haven't really talked about on the podcast, but it is an issue that a lot of a lot of our members can really relate to. We're going to be talking about um, the violence that happens to children whose mothers are experiencing um, intimate partner violence. So that their fathers or yeah, their fathers are the ones who are sort of perpetuating and perpetrating the violence and how that impacts the children and oftentimes can lead to the, the, the murder of the children. So Amy wanted to sort of showcase and highlight this. And we, when we were talking about it, Shalina and I looked at each other via Zoom and yeah. said, this is, this, is, this is going to be a big one. This is going to be a hot one. So It is. Well, And you know what, guys, I'm so, um, you know, I met you guys a few months ago and I thought to myself, this is exactly where I need to be right now with these ladies, because the work that you guys do is so important. And I'll tell you why I've been through the system, the family law system in Ontario for many years now. And one of the, the most shocking parts of my participation in all of these appearances in court was the fact that I was exposed to intimate partner violence. Um, that was quite violent. And, uh, you know, with the history of domestic violence, um, children, uh, my children in particular, were um, observers of it. So they were, they witnessed the violence. And so I thought way back when that, 
if uh, children witness violence, that's got to be the worst thing ever, right? Like, why would any judge ever um, give a father like that access to children once he's gone ahead and done that? Because, you know, the act of violence um, to a spouse or to an intimate partner in front of their children is the same as doing it to them. So if you look at the psychological ramifications, what they found is that even speaking badly of your partner in front of the children is as bad as you speaking badly or saying those things directly to the children. So I just couldn't, um, I couldn't piece that together. And once I entered into the system and I started to realize that it was all about, you know, objectivity, quote unquote, or, you know, we want to take emotion out of it. I started to dig deeper and I started looking more into the fact that within the GTA alone, there have been several murder suicides and murders of children where they've, their lives have been taken prematurely just due to the fact that their um, ex decided that they wanted to punish or they wanted to make their ex feel what they're feeling on the inside. So what I want to talk about today is actually a couple examples that I've uh, seen in the media um, over the last couple of years, specifically, and oddly enough, and I'm not sure like the universe was trying to show me something, but specifically um, a couple uh, murder-suicides that happened on days when I was actually going to court myself. So um, the first one I want to talk about is the murder-suicide uh, where a father took his daughter's life. There was an Amber Alert on February 14th, 2019. Um, and the the police was uh, putting the Amber Alert out um, on that evening for Rhea Rajkumar, who uh, was picked up by her father for her birthday. So she was turning 11 that day. Father picked her up at a gas station from the mom. Um, and, you know, the mom started to feel a little worried a few hours in because she couldn't get a hold of him. Uh, previous to this, he had actually a couple of con um, a couple of instances with the courts for assault, uh, not only against her, but against family members, and um, I think against a colleague at a point. And so he had a history of, of violence. But what ended up happening um, in this circumstance was he picked her up, he took her wherever he took her, um, and he killed her. And after he killed her, I think he was on the run and he had shot himself or something like that. I'm not sure. I don't remember the details, but I think it was a self-inflicted gun, gunshot wound. And he ended up dying a few days later. But this is a very specific example of what I'm talking about. And, you know, the morning that... Um, the morning after the Amber Alert was called, my husband had taken me aside to tell me that they had found her body in a home in Brampton. And I remember feeling so devastated because that was a day when I was actually appearing in court myself um, to to mm -hmm. face my, ch my, my twin's father. And it, it really hit home. And, you know, these circumstances always hit home because I think from my perspective, being in the system and really seeing what the system does um, has been eye-opening. I also interact with a lot of women who reach out to me who are going through their own divorces and separations from their exes. And the similarities are just really, really real. Like they are so yeah. similar and so many different characteristics. Yeah. 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 I, I, I just want to talk a little bit about, and I'm glad you sort of opened by giving an example of um, a murder suicide from last year. 
I've, in all the years that I've been doing this, and like you, Amy, I got involved in this um, anti-violence against women movement because of my own personal experiences, navigating both family courts, criminal courts, civil courts, around my my wish to separate from my my ex. Yeah. And and in all the all the years that I've been doing this, every time uh, a father, it's usually it's usually the fathers who kill their children. Yeah. And yes, there are instances where women have committed it but overwhelmingly research has shown overwhelmingly it's fathers who exact this form of uh, revenge but one I of actually the most i actually have the statistic about it and oh, uh i'm just looking for it right now while you're speaking because it's uh it's something like 93 percent or 94 percent like it's in the 90s in terms of it being yeah. from the father's side yeah 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 but I, I, I'm, so what I wanted our listeners to understand is that it's not, uh, first of all, it's not something that happens just in GTA, Toronto, Canada, you know, Ontario, Canada. This is a global thing. Right? It is. It's a global, it's a global, that's another pandemic, number one. Number two, I don't want people to think that it's a cultural thing either, right? So I don't want people to start thinking that it happens in some communities. Absolutely. Because it, white men, have done it. Yes. South Asian women have done it. I cannot remember a black man doing it, but it doesn't mean that they, they haven't. Yes. But it's it's something that crosses all socioeconomic, cultural, cultural uh, backgrounds. Yes. What one other thing that sort of connects all of these men is this sense of of control, right? Power and yep. control. And to them, the ultimate control is of the life of the child. And when they are not family annihilators, which is a term that they use in, in England, a family annihilator is a man who will kill his wife, his kids, his mother, and, and then kill himself. Yeah. When they're not that type of, of family annihilator, they will kill the child and they'll kill themselves. And they do it because they, they want the, the mother, as you said, to live without her child. Which to yes. me, when I think about ultimate forms of cruelty, right? And inhumane cruelty, abject cruelty. I cannot think of anything worse than you look at your kid and think, I'm going to punish you in order to punish your mother. I mean, come on. So, so something I want to tell you, Neka, it actually goes even deeper than that. Because um, one of my points to, to people oftentimes is, you know, uh, people, will, people love to say, well, you know, if we're, if we're going to be emotional about it, um, you know, yeah, you know, it happens. But, you know, in, in the court system, you got to take the emotion out. And, but even if you take the emotion out and you make it a very objective uh, argument, if you look at the top data that's available to us right now. So um, I, I was looking into, you know, statistics and really the, um, the statistics that are, are released by, there's a domestic violence death review committee in Ontario. Oh, oh, oh are you? I just, I was just, I was just, I know I'm now showing off. I was just yes. nominated to join yes. the domestic violence death. I love that. I love that because they do really, really good work in, in revealing what it is that really happens in these cases. And, you know, they talked about top risk factors. And so I think for, for the listeners today, I just want to mention some of these top risk factors that they've published, because I think that you can also piece together the, um, the profile of a person that's most likely to do this. Yes. So they're talking about how the perpetrator 
is usually depressed, 50%, right? 50% of them are depressed. Obsessive behavior by the perpetrator regarding their ex, that's 46% of them. Prior threats or attempts to commit suicide, um, 45% of them had that. A victim who had an intuitive sense of fear towards the perpetrator. So oftentimes, you know, you've got that gut feeling that there's something not right um, because it usually isn't. Um, The perpetrator knows that you have those feelings, but that you can't do anything about it. So again, that control comes into play there. Um, Prior threats or attempts to commit suicide. A victim who has had, uh, sorry, a a perpetrator who's had um, or displayed sexual jealousy, right? When they were with their partner. Um, Prior threats to kill the victim. Um, excessive alcohol or drug use, a perpetrator who's unemployed, 40% of them were unemployed, Um, somebody who's got history of violence outside of the family, and somebody who can escalate violence very quickly. Um, So if you look at these types of things, they're saying, they're reporting that 71% of the cases they reviewed between 2003 and 2017, seven or more of these risk factors were identified. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I also want viewers or listeners to understand that you can also have a a, a, a perpetrator killer who displays none of that mm-hmm. right so it it's risk factors are important because they're indicators uh to sort of a predisposition but you can also have perpetrators who kill and this is why community you know every time there's a murder like this the news casters show up Reporters show up at, at, at the street and neighbors say, oh my God, I didn't know he was such a lovely human being. People, people don't always know because these men don't always manifest or display these attentions. I mean, yeah. one thing I notice is that they're so charismatic, right? In the way that they present themselves outside. No woman really goes into a relationship with a man saying that I'm, I want to be beaten in my relationship, right? We get into relationships yeah. thinking we're in love and we are going to have this wholesome relationship and we buy into the charisma. Um, but oftentimes that's exactly what they display out there to others, whether it's in court, it's to CAS, it's to neighbors and friends and family, right? So absolutely, I totally agree with you, Neka. And you know, actually on that, on that note, the second case I wanted to talk about um, was um, a, a little girl named Kira Kagan. And uh, February 9th of this year, her father uh, uh, jumped off a cliff with her um, locally here in Mississauga. Now that case in particular, her mother was actually in the court, um, repeatedly and actually, especially a few weeks before this happened, um, basically bringing to the judge's attention that he's not fit and he was withholding her on the last visit and not returning her to her mom. So he was really using this poor little girl who was only four when this happened as bait to control the mother who had repartnered and had actually had a second child with her new partner. Um, And again, this is another case where I really identify with the severity of it because oftentimes these guys, because they are losing their control in a situation where someone's repartnered, it basically brings up old feelings of jealousy and anger. They start to use a child in the middle. Um, It was like a perfect storm for something like this to happen. But the really sad thing that I noticed when I was researching this particular case is the media outlets. 
So a whole bunch of them reporting this as, oh, they may have slipped and fell because it was snowy and rainy on the cliff, right? But they were specifically like poor mom and her and her new partner. Um, her name is Jennifer Kagan. She was she was basically saying that you know what, this was a murder. Like he did it on purpose because he was acting like this for the recent weeks. And even though there was a particular judge who I think he said for a week, you can't see your daughter, but you'll be able to see her after a week, like gave her, gave him another chance to see her. So she was really bound by this access order where she was being forced to give her child to him, even though she knew in her gut that it was probably not the right thing to do. Yeah. I think that like, I can kind of come at this from the child's lens. So like I've shared, I think in this podcast before, I know in your podcast, Amy, when we were guests there, um, is that my, my mom has been a part of several relationships that have been abusive. Yes. And I think that for, uh, well, for the first one that happened, I was very little, I think like one, and we were they were meeting at the family the family violence center in toronto to do a visit and my biological father every time we showed up um all he would do is try to talk to my mom the whole time yeah it had nothing to do with me and so i think that was an interesting thing because it all had to do with my mom there was a lot of jealousy that was going on and things like that in the second relationship that my mom was in that that looked a lot like all the stories that we're talking about. So we, we were, we had a child lawyer, we were in a custody battle for years. Um, I was a bit older, so it mostly had to do with my sister. And the judge actually told my mom that serial killers should have access to their children. Uh, that was said in our courtroom. I believe and, it. I believe yeah. it. And because I have to have to tell you something. There was one time this last year where the judge said, don't worry, even people who sexually abuse their children get access to them. And I was mortified. Yeah. And so that's kind of like what we went up against. When we did leave my dad, um, we had to go stay at the family transition place, which is a shelter here in Orangeville. Yeah. And their shelter is actually dedicated to a situation that happened here in Orangeville. Oh gosh, probably like 25 years ago where a mom had went and dropped off her kids because he had access uh, for an access visit for, I think it was just a day. And he murdered the kids, locked them in the house, waited till the mom got there and then was able to murder the mom too. And so the family transition place here in Orangeville is dedicated to that family. And Mm -hmm. I remember looking at that because their dedication is on a big rock. And so as soon as we went in, we could read this rock. And so we looked up the family because we had no idea. And what we saw was what had happened. And it was me that was like bawling because I didn't want my sister to have to go and visit my dad because I was so scared that this was some sort of sign that like, listen, it's not okay. Mm -hmm. So there's definitely been coming from the child's lens uh, in kind of like domestic abuse. It's definitely, there's definitely a fear there from the kids too, whether they be siblings. I know we've kind of had that conversation on the podcast before. Um, But yeah, definitely a, definitely a concern. Yeah. Yeah. So I I think about um, across Ontario, there there are several 
we were we participated we attended um the coroner's inquest on the death of a young boy called jared Hudash in hamilton uh, mm -hmm. i think around 2006 yeah who again had he i can't even remember when he was murdered by his dad but the father um on an access visit after the mother had spent years begging the family courts don't give him access because this man was saying you know i'm going to get you where i'm going to get you and i'm going to get you where it hurts and she knew where it hurts is my kid so yeah. she she was going from lawyer to lawyer to lawyer judge to judge every court appearance saying don't he's going he's going to kill my kid and it's the way the system is so complicit in this right because they turned it on her that she was being unfriendly she was being unreasonable she was just jealous and angry and it's it's difficult so I, my question to you amy is how do you think women um can what strategies can women use to sort of persuade the the, the system and the courts that this is not um, my <laughs> my reaction is not out of jealousy and anger towards my ex but is actually yeah. born out of real genuine fear for my children what are the strategies that would so so use? like one thing that i did in this last bout going through the system was really look at what is the system right what is it that the judges are looking at what is my lawyer really saying right and i had very good conversations with my lawyer like i, I there was days where i was super pissed and then there were days where I was like, you know what, you tell me, what do you see out there? And all I kept hearing from them is, you know, you got to prove yourself. You got to prove you're not alienating the child. You've got to prove what you've been doing is right. And, you know, uh, for me, it was a, a lot of it was about stability. I wanted my kids to feel stable. This guy was in and out of their lives like years at a time. And I said, you know, it's not fair that he comes back and that we have to do all these things. The result of that really was I, 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 I also complied with the system, right? Because you know what? if you can't beat them, you got to join them. So you've got to be really clever in the way that you present your arguments in court, right? You've got to look at what are they really asking, right? Because the judges are all going to be like, well, you know, the bio, both biological parents have a right to see the child. Well, then you know what you share with them and you show them through examples that both biological parents should not see the child because it's not a right, a parent's right to see a child. That's something that you have to earn right? So in my case, what ended up happening is we went right away and said, we want the OCL involved, right? So I would say, number one, fight for the OCL to be involved. The OCL will be able to come in. So what is it? Tell me. Let me explain us. that. Yeah. So tell, the OCL, tell, our tell our listeners, first of all, what the OCL stands for and then Sure. So the OCL is the Office of the Children's Lawyer. It's um, it's a, a service provided by the Ministry of the Attorney General, I believe, in Ontario. And basically what happens is they don't take everyone's case. So when you go into court, um, you really have to have a strong case. And the way that you make your case is you show the disparity between what the, what the parent is saying and what the children are saying. And you do it through very specific examples. So I've spent many years of my life meticulously documenting days and times my my children told me things and the way that it works in a child's psyche is that children don't remember or to tell you things right away so they may be seeing the parent and being abused by the parent during the time they're seeing the parent 
at say the age of four, five, six, but I noticed around the age of seven, eight, nine, little by little stories started coming out. Things like my dad left me in the apartment while he went to buy some smokes, right? For like 20 minutes and they were only five. Or daddy used to leave us in the car while he went grocery shopping and we used to play like hand games and they were only five, right? And they were told to hide. So things like that start to come up. Um, What I noticed is When I went to court and I asked for the OCL to be involved, at first they didn't approve it, but the case was so strong because I had the documented times and the documented things that they had said that it became so apparent that I was not able to be making that up. The judge really had no choice but to request that the OCL be involved. At that point, the OCL was involved. And once the OCL gets involved, it is it does involve the children. So they'll appoint a social worker and the social worker actually represents these lawyers in the background who, ta- who give instruction to the social worker on the types of things they're looking for, right, in the investigation. It's a very intrusive process. I'm not going to lie. It's not easy on the kids because getting my children involved at that level was not something I wanted to do, but I realized it was something I had to do. And so the, excuse me, the social worker ended up meeting with the children a couple of times and asking them very specific questions about, you know, the violence that they witnessed, um, their experience with their father, and then they compile a report and they submitted it to the court. Now, having said that, the opposition can still... um, oppose the report. Like they can still ask that the report is reviewed. They can uh, go ahead and not agree with the report when it's, when it's against them. And in this case that happened as well. Right. So what's the next step? Again, you really have to look at it from the court's perspective and present your arguments as objective as possible. Yes, you get really pissed off when you read your affidavit and you get really pissed off when they serve you with their affidavit because a lot of times you're going to read it and be like, what is this crap, right? Like this is not something that even (laughs) happened. But I have to remind your listeners that you've got to look at it like, okay, if this wasn't about me, it was about somebody else and they're trying to paint a picture. I got to paint my picture of what the reality was, right? And again, it's a lot of proofs and it's a lot of getting people involved. At that point, I had like right when I started this process, I've always had a therapist involved with my children because mm-hmm. a therapist is a third party. So if they're saying I'm alienating my child, then you know what? This therapist is not going to say either way. They're really just there to represent the child and what the child is telling them. So if I was alienating my children and they're going and speaking with this therapist independent of me, my children would tell her that, you know what? There's instances where my mom talks bad about my dad in front of me, you know, or there's instances where my mom told me you better not see your dad because of A, B, and C, right? So, so having a therapist involved is super helpful. And I would say not any therapist, it should be a child psychologist that has the PhD and has the ability to write the assessment reports that you require for your court proceedings. What ended up happening in my case was it was a lot of back and forth. It was many appearances in court and we eventually ended up having to agree to see like a reunification counselor and my whole thing was I will not proceed with the therapy the reunification therapy because the children say no but I'm willing to speak to the counselor and that's when the counselor stepped in and basically said you know what I've spoken with the mom I've spoken with the dad 
I've spoken with the children and this is what the children really want. And you know, that's probably the only way that I can tell any of your listeners to go through the system. It's unfair. It's very one-sided. I feel like there was a point where my kids asked me, they were like, you know, mom, we're doing so much work. We see a therapist, you see a therapist. We have all these people involved. You're always doing something to help us, but he's not doing anything, right? right? It's not fair. And I, you know, in my mind's eye, I agree with them, but that's (laughs) the reality of our system. And if you really, really want to be able to protect yourself and your children, we have to somehow go through the system from that perspective. Yeah. I think it's also really important. Sorry. No, 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 off to you. I think it's also really important when you talk about the therapist that the OCL will bring in or whatever, because ours was court appointed and it was a man, an older white man that completely sided with my dad. And he didn't even, I, I don't even know if he had ever met my dad, but everything that came back from him was, yeah, like the kids don't seem interested, but... And like all that stuff. And my mom had to actually advocate for us to get a different therapist because we went into him, I think twice. And yeah. both were like, no, like absolutely yeah. not, please do not send us back to this guy. And he was very much, he wasn't listening to us. He was very much trying to put um, what we should be doing and how we should be feeling in our heads. And I think that we were then um, placed with a different uh, child therapist and she was so much better. So, yeah. much better. so I think also advocating for, I agree a hundred percent. You've got to advocate for yourself. Like, you know, one thing that I've realized also through the system is you got to advocate for yourself with your lawyer because not all lawyers are the same. They're not all built the same. Some lawyers may not even, some lawyers have been to family court so many times. They're just like, you know what? Let's just figure out a way to like compromise, right? Let's figure out a way to make this all work. That's not what we're looking for in a situation like this, right? When there's domestic violence involved or any intimate partner violence involved, you know that eventually that person's going to be a perpetrator against the children, right? At at some degree, if not, it will end up being a murder, right? So you've got to really, you've got to really look at your situation and and learn the system too, right? I spent a lot of hours, believe it or not, reading the Family Law Act because (laughs) I wanted to know, I'm like, I don't know, what are these guys all bound by? Like, what is she talking about and all that stuff? So I used to spend, I remember hours, hours upon hours where I was like (laughs) reading the actual Family Law Act. And I was like sitting there and thinking to myself, you know what, certain things, they, they should be changed. But now I understand why they're presenting these arguments this way. Yeah. You know, I, I want to go back to the role of Office of the Children's Lawyer and the role of these court appointed um, therapists and counselors mm-hmm. and how there is no consistency, mm-hmm. right, in in the representation. And sometimes it's a, roll of the dice who you get it's true we have members i mean one of our members one of our uh, chapter chairs jamie torrick from susan marie was on the show uh, on the podcast a couple of weeks ago yeah and jamie's main area of advocacy is about ocl yeah because her experience was utterly utterly unacceptable the lawyer was incompetent the social worker was making up a whole bunch of stuff yeah and, and all of it was, none of this was in the best interest of the children. Yeah. All of it was about either support 
in the perpetrator or covering their own asses. And so part of the challenge, part of the challenge is understanding that the system as it's set up is not applied fairly and equally because it depends on individuals. Well, I mean, you know what, Naka, even in my story, I mean, the fact is that like, I was thinking, oh, the Office of the Children Lawyers appointed, this will be over. It wasn't. Because even after we got the report, and that report was like hard work, right? Because like what they end up doing is they end up talking to you many, many times, and they end up talking to him many, many times. And, you know, it it is, it's, it's, it's like rolling dice. And I have to be honest, too, the way that they spoke to the kids wasn't that great because no. the the second visit one left in tears couldn't finish the interview the second one was like you know what if you ever make me talk to somebody like that again i won't do it right yeah. um yeah. i have to be honest it it's it's one of those situations where it is a system that's been created to push this access to both biological parents despite the situation and that's something that like I said before, is very shocking. It was, it was new to me. I've been in it for so long now that now I understand um, it better. But for anybody who's entering it or who's experiencing it, it's like, where do you go? Where do you go for help? The other thing is it's very costly. If you're going to hire lawyers and you're going to continue to go to court all the time, it's so costly. Who's, who's footing that bill when you're taking care of your kids and you're supporting your kids all the time on your own, right? Like it's like such a. Yeah, this, this is why women lose not just, you know, their homes because lawyers, you have lawyers fees. Yeah. Women, I, I, we have a, uh, I have a good friend called um, who's doing her PhD, uh, Julie Young, out of Brescia College, and Julie was her research is again around family courts, and the likelihood of men getting custody, um, in these situations where abusive fathers actually end up walking away with custody in these mm-hmm. types of situations. Yeah, and how the research that she's doing has shown that when men Abusive men show up in courts and fight for custody in, in some like ridiculous number in the 90th percentile, they, they get it, right? Because the, the, way the, the way they present in the court is that they, they're loving fathers, they're fighting for their children, they yeah. want to, whereas in reality, it has nothing to do with the best interest of the child. It is yeah. about, again, getting you where, where it's going to hurt you the most. Yeah. It's for us, and I, 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 I'm sort of looking at it system-wide yes we are not interested in piecemeal working with we're interested in dismantling yeah right because it is it is grossly unfair yes the way it's working out right now and you can't tinker with you can't tinker with family law you can't tinker with and expect that it's going to keep children's best interest at at its center and expect that it's going to sort of understand uh, um pass out responsibility it doesn't because these decision makers fact finders judges tend to operate with this blinkered mentality well i mean i i think it's also you know there's this there's there's a weird mentality in the system that says something about how kids are going to have issues like you know mommy or daddy issues when they grow older because they haven't seen the parent right and that's something that shalina (laughs) no like like that's something i'd like to challenge i'd like to challenge that because you know what? I have seen 
many single parents out there raise children who are strong, amazing human beings who didn't see their other parent, um, you know, from a, from a very young age. So, so, I mean, it's one of those things where I'm like, where are you even getting your statistics from? Are you looking at the psychological ramifications? Now my background is in mental health, right? I've worked in healthcare for over 21 years. I work with mainly adults who've got health, uh, mental health issues for so mm-hmm. many years. And, you know, you can pinpoint moments in history in their lives where, something just clicked and went wrong, right? Mm -hmm. Why continue to expose the children to that level of violence or that level of um, hate, right? When they have the freedom to be who they want to be with the parent that's nurturing that. Yeah. I think that we're reading this book right now. Uh, It's called Untamed by Glennon Doyle. Yes. I know that book. Yeah. And she talks about... um, instead of parents trying to be a martyr for kids and trying to, you know, give up themselves and their life for their children, for them to actually be a model instead. And so a question that she asks in the book is, you know, I'm trying to stay in this marriage for my child, but would I want this marriage for my child? Right. Would I want him to be? I love that. And I think that, I think that just like, kind of taking your thinking and putting it on your head helps. I also wanted to comment on what NECA was saying about dismantling the system. I think it's also important to understand, now, I'm a social worker, I have an MSW, I know Amanda here is on the call and she is just graduating with her BSW and doing her master's next year. And we will be one of the first people to say that social work happens within a system. Social work is very much based on policing. If you look at child welfare, if you look at all of those things, social workers have been very complicit within policing, within systems, and with oppression. And so I think that like when we base, when we when we lift up social workers depend and we don't know what their framework is or what their context is or who they are, or what, yeah. where they come from or their positionality, that can also be very dangerous. Right. Yeah. And the other thing I want to like, something I want to say is sometimes they're not complicit, but they just don't have a choice. You know, I think it's a system that's been so create. It's been created around this ideology that it's like, you're either in it or you're not. And if you're not in it, then you're, you're, you're going to lose in it. Right. Because I felt very strongly, even moments in court where you start to look at the court reporters and they're just looking at your face. Like, I can't believe this is happening to you you know, but I'm going to go ahead typing and I'm going to go home to my family. Mm -hmm. I'm going to act like this didn't happen. Right. Like there's so many people who are sitting in that courtroom when you're there and they're just staring at your face, like witnesses to the system. And it's like so strange. It's a very weird out of body type of experience. So sometimes I look at these social workers that are involved and I'm like, they do know better because their training has taught them better, but they're probably thinking, well, you know, I'm in the system now and how do I navigate the system perhaps to help this person? Right. I, 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 I liked um, in my own, I remember when uh, we were in our family court trial and uh, I think it was like day two. And I, 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 I ran out of money, or my sister yeah. ran out of money. So our lawyer, my lawyer dropped, dropped me. Yeah. Uh, paying like $750, $500 an hour for the main lawyer, $250 an hour for his associate. So yeah. $750 an hour. And they both showed up at every fucking meeting. 
Anyways, I, I quickly ran out of money. So yes, I ended up, yeah, and I ended up self-representing. But on the second day of the trial, um, my ex-husband was dating this woman and I, I'm, I'm not blaming her per se, but he, he was dating this woman who took it upon herself to show up at, at court. Right? Nice. Every day she'd show yeah. up and she'd be sort of stroking his hair. And, and on the day that I, I started and I took, I took the stand and I was sort of explaining the arc of the, the history of our, our relationship and the violence, by the time it came to the break, the, you know, the judge said, okay, we're going to have a break. We'll resume it at two o'clock or whatever. And yeah. I, w I was on the stand. I'd been weeping, bawling on the stand. And the clerk, the court clerk, this lovely black woman, little old black woman. Yeah. Um, sort of everybody, the courtroom was cleared. She sat, she just stood beside me for 20 minutes while I tried to compose myself. And then when I was about to get up to walk out the main door, yeah. she said to me, would you like to go? Did I tell you this, Shalina? Did I tell you guys this? I don't know. I've and never said, heard this. She said to me, would you like to go out through the judge's entrance? And I said, no, because I didn't understand what she was saying. She said, no, yeah. you can go out through the judge's entrance. And I say, no, it's, it's fine. I'm, I'm good. I'm good. Unbeknownst to me that my ex's girlfriend was waiting for me on the other side of the door. No way. Yeah, she was waiting. And this lovely little old court reporter, just as you said, who'd been sitting in the court, listening to all this, to me, that was her act of resistance. It that was. That was her act of, of yeah. allyship. Because yeah. she was afraid for my safety. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And I, I didn't get that. I did tell you about this, Shalina, because remember the thing about running down, yeah. the, <laughs> running down the, the hallway. Yeah. yeah. But, so, so I understand that there are, there are people who are complicit and that, that complicitness is that they don't just give a fuck. They don't care. Yeah. Then there are people who are part of the system who are so moved but feel that there's nothing they can do, that their hands are tied. I agree. And, and you know what? I've seen it on their faces. I've seen them look at me in the face and be like, wow, I can't believe this is happening to you. Mm. You know? And yeah. it's like one of those situations where you're just like, I don't know. This is, it is happening to me. It's been happening for many years. When is it going to yeah. end, you know? Yeah. I think that that says so much about the system that we try to go to for any type of justice. So Amy, as, as I, we were really interested in your navigation of this, this system, this, uh, the process. Yeah. And we're wondering about if you had some tips that you, you could share with women who are either just, they're thinking about entering into, into it, not, not because they want to, but because they yeah. probably have to, yeah. or, or women who are already in it. What, what are like three to five things that you would advise them to do or not do? Um, okay. Well, I'm, I'm going to give the, the perspective of not only myself, but the types of advice that I give to other women who are in different stages of the system, as well as those who maybe not have entered yet, right? So number one, if you can avoid going through the system, which I doubt a lot of your listeners can, because it sounds like a lot of them are like acute violent issues, um, in which case you're going to end up in the system, I would say go for a mediator, right? But once you're in the system, number one thing is you always believe in yourself. 
You know, there's a lot of times where you're being gaslit to believe that there's something wrong with you or there's something wrong with the way you're thinking or you're alienating the children because you don't want to send them sometimes, you know. Meanwhile, what's really happening is your intuition screaming, no, don't send them or is screaming like, be careful. There's something wrong with the situation. If you've got that gut feeling at an exchange, I would say follow it. You know, um, I know a lot of women are really scared to go against access orders or they're really super scared that something's going to happen to them or they're going to end up in jail. But between friends, I'd say it's better to just risk that than to send your children to somebody you may think is going to hurt or kill them. That's my number one thing. Number two, I would say you've got to learn how to take a look at the emotional state that you're in and find a way to slow down your brain. So the way that I used to do that is I practice mindfulness daily throughout the day. And mm-hmm. what I do is I'll, I'll do like, like on-demand meditations in my mind because I've been doing them for so many years. But even if it means like putting your headphones on and going onto YouTube for one minute for a one-minute meditation, do it. Because it shuts down parts of your brain so that you can hear yourself again. And if you can't hear yourself in all the noise, you're not going to be any use to any other child or the system or what you're trying to fight, right? Because it's so easy, again, to get gaslit and to get involved so deeply Mm -hmm. into the system that's set out for you to fail, right? Um, The other piece is when you're going through the system, read all your legal documents. Know your (laughs) documents inside out. Don't trust your lawyer. Your lawyer may be amazing and maybe, you know, your best friend, but don't trust them. They don't know your history the way you do, right? Exactly. Document your history. Write it down. Like I used to use notes in my iPhone and I would literally write time, date, and what happened. And then at the end of a year, you've got like, you know, all these notes in there and you've got basically your affidavit prepared for you, you know? So read your legal documents, make sure the information is correct, make sure names are correct, make sure times and dates are correct. Because you know what, they may not know whether you're telling the truth or not. But the more proof you have in there, the more it's going to work in your favor at the end of the day. The other thing too, is like sleep, make sure you're sleeping seven to eight hours a night. You know, um, there was a long time where I was staying up till three or 4 a.m. reading everything and like reading the family law, as I mentioned, and stuff like that. (laughs) But then I'd have to wake up at seven or wake up at six and be up for work and get the kids ready and, you know, get get out the door. Um, It doesn't serve you not to sleep because you know what? When you don't sleep, you can't think. So make sure you're sleeping right? Make sure you're making that time to take care of yourself. And you're also really irritable. So by dinner time, you're going to be snapping at the kids. And that's not something that you want either. Right. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the last piece I'm going to leave everybody with is, you know, really try to visualize what you want your life to look like. Because I feel like visualizing your life and what you want it to look like will bring it to reality. And what I mean by visualizing is include all your senses, smell it, feel it, see it, you know, just get right into the feeling of it. Because what I did for many years was I would visualize and I would write my visualizations. And I cannot, like, it sounds really corny now, but I really have built this life now with my new partner. 
exactly as I saw it in my visualizations. Um, there was a point a few weeks ago, I, I was emptying my mom's basement and I had left some things in my mom's basement when I was like, you know, moving from my own house, moving in with my new partner. And so I opened it up and I was reading this journal that I had kept. And it was so funny. I had written like what I want in my future partner and all these characteristics I had list, listed are in my current partner. I had written things like, I want to live in this neighborhood, in this area. And I live in that neighborhood, in this area. Like it's, it's a really, really strange, I can't explain it, you know, from a, from a scientific perspective, but I really feel strongly that if you can live it in your mind, you can live it in reality. And if you can do that for yourself, it'll also give you the hope to get through that really shitty stuff. Wow. I love every one of those. Yeah. Every single one of those. And I, I too believe in the power of visualization. I really do. Yeah. And I love the document the documenting. I tell when I do training for, for survivors who are self-representing in family yeah. courts, my one advice is I'm I'm gonna incorporate all of yours now. But you my, should. thank you. And I'm gonna attribute it to you. But my one, advice, <laughs> my one advice is always that whatever email or correspondence that you send to him, yeah. you're actually not sending it to him. You're, you're, imagine that you're writing to the lawyer. Yes. Oh, I love that one. To the judge. You're writing to the judge because whatever you said to him is going to show up. Yep. It's going to show up in one form or other. So force yourself to visualize that the person who's actually going to be reading that email at the end of the day is not Mr. Dickhead. It's yeah. actually Justice Dickhead. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I a hundred percent agree. And it does happen because it happened to me throughout the process yeah. and it happened to him too. And you know what, because I took your advice, cause I already had it in mind, it really saved me a lot of heartache. And you know, the other thing too is that goes for emails, that goes for text messages, that goes for everything. If you're pissed off about something that's happening, call your girlfriends, yep. you know, call your friends yep. and tell them, look at this ass, look what he's doing to me, but do not go and write that in an email or in text messages. Anything you write can be used against you, you know, and that's something that like, it's, you put it on social media, guess what? Everyone has access to it. And you know what? You erase it. It's still out there somewhere. So, you know, be careful, be careful with that one. Yeah. Those are amazing. Those are amazing. Um, we're wrapping up. So the question that we usually ask to end with our guests is if you had one superpower, what would it be and why? So it's funny because, um, I I was expecting this question and I couldn't figure it out on my own. I was like, what's my superpower? (laughs) So I was sitting at dinner last night and I asked my kids, I'm like, guys, if you if you thought, you know, I had a superpower, what would it be? And they were like, you know what? You see the good in every situation. And because you see the good in those situations, it helps you deal with the situation better. So I thought about it and I thought maybe it's just resilience, right? Because you look at your situation and you think to yourself, at the end of the day, what did I learn from this and how can I make this good for myself, right? So you can just go to bed at night and be happy about it. And I do that not only for myself, but I do it for all the kids too. And I try to impart that on them. So I think that's what my superpower would be. It would be resilience. I love that. Love it. Love it. Yeah. I absolutely love it. 
This has, been, this has been great. This has been great. Julian, you're going to say we're going to... We're going to leave on. our checkout now, yeah. Um, so the way that our checkout goes is, I'm sure you are drinking some sort of wine, alcohol, yes. beverage. Yes. So you're just going to let us know what it is. And because we've already told our listeners what ours are, you're just going to tell yours okay. and then give it a rating between one and five. And then I'm going to ask a checkout question. Okay. And I am going between four right now and I don't know which one to pick. <laughs> uh, so does someone want to say a number between one and four? Three. <laughs> that's what I was thinking too, but I didn't want to jump. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. <laughs> okay. How old would you be if you had to stay one age forever? So you're going to give us your wine rating or okay. alcohol rating, and then we'll all go around and do that, and then we'll do our checkout question after, but just giving it to you so that you can think about it. Awesome. Mm -hmm. All right. So can I start? Yeah. Okay. So, so actually when I, when I originally thought about like, you know, pick your poison, my, my most famous one lately has been Barolo. Like I'm really into Barolo red wine and um, like there's a particular one that I, I purchased most of the time. That's, it's like a vintage back in 2016. But today for our podcast, I actually grabbed one out of the fridge, which is a white wine. And I don't, I don't usually drink white wine, but this one's amazing. And I don't know exactly what it is, but it's called Piero Pen. And it's uh, Italian red, uh, sorry, white wine um, from 2018. And it doesn't really have a name. Uh, it's this Classico, but um, it's like an organic wine. And I'm I'm loving it. I, I I give it. So is it like it's one to five? So is one being like not that great and five being excellent? Yeah. Yeah. So f so I give it a five. Wow. wow. It's, it's pretty. It's pretty amazing. I have to be honest. For a red wine drinker, that is yeah. Impressive. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go because I'm I'm doing the actual opposite to Amy. I'm usually a white wine drinker. Yeah. I've run out of white wine. Yeah. <laughs> in the, in the so you're the opposite of me <laughs> right now. Right? So all I had left was, in, when I opened my the alcohol liquor cupboard, was a, a Wolf Blast um, Cabernet Sauvignon 2018. Yeah. And, uh, and I don't usually drink red because I used to drink when I was younger, only red. But then it started giving me a headache. Mm -hmm. This is delicious. Yes, Wolf Blast isn't bad. This is not bad. I would actually give this a four. That's wow. pretty good. Yes. <laughs> I'm feeling it. I can go next. Uh, I'm drinking a cider, a rose gold, very soaked cider. And I'm actually going to give this like a 4.8. It's wow. very. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Cider. Huh, 4.8. Awesome. You said, Lena? Yeah. Sorry, I'm trying to write down the name so I can put it in the stuff later. <laughs> I, we didn't, I was not thinking and I didn't put any wine in the fridge. And so I was like, literally 10 minutes before we started, I was like, shit, I don't have anything to drink. <laughs> but we had leftover, we went to a, like a social distancing barbecue last weekend and we had leftover like cider things. And so we have, it's a twisted tea peach and it tastes like a Snapple. It's so good. It's like a five oh, out of wow. five. It's wow. so good. Yeah, it's like drinking juice, so that's a problem, but it's really good. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. So what now, is it? now we can go around with the question. So again, it's how old would you be if you had to stay one age forever? Hmm. I'll start. Okay. Yes. 
Um, I would be 41 forever. I'm 41 now. And uh, I have to be honest, this has been like one of the best years of my life, even with COVID and everything like that going on. But I feel like, uh, you know, it's one of those moments where you're like, um, a few months ago, I thought, I really like feel like I came into my own. I know my, I know my boundaries. I know my limits. I know who I am. I know what I'm willing to put up with. And I know what I'm not willing to put up with. And so it makes friendships and life and family so much easier, you know? Yeah. I can go next. Um, I, so I'm 32. So maybe this answer might change in a couple yeah. of years. I have no <laughs> idea. Um, but I also feel the same. Like I would say maybe like 30, 31. I think that like in the past, yeah, maybe like two years. So maybe 31. I have just become like a different person. Like very yes. confident in myself, very confident with my own decisions. I feel very like free in myself making those decisions. Um, I don't feel tied down to like have to please people that I don't really care to please anymore. So for you. I would say, <laughs> I would say like, yeah, early thirties. Um, but who knows? Maybe I'll transform even more when, until I'm forty-one. <laughs> You know, they always say like for, especially for women, I don't know about men, but for, especially for women, I feel like from like 20 to 30 to 40 to 50, there's just always this quantum leap every decade that we go through. Um, and that's what I've heard. Ah, okay. So, yeah. I'm ready for it. <laughs> I can go. Cause I had it like, I'm 27. So I like had this like kind of a, a same thought issue. And I was like, I feel like I haven't gotten to that age yet like for me I was like I haven't got I don't know I'm like yeah. I haven't lived enough life to say that I want to stay at one of those ages yeah, yeah um so like I'm like the answer that came to mind I was like I would have to pick my age now just because I like feel like I've like am my most myself now than ever before but I feel like yeah. that's only going to increase like I yeah so I don't it feels weird to say 27 because I'm like, I don't know if that's actually true. I don't know if I would want to be 27 forever, but how can I say that I would want to be something older if I haven't lived it yet? So I'm going to save my age now. Good for you. That's a great, that's a great, that's a great question, Shalina. Um, for me, it's around the same, it's 40, right? And uh, because by the time I, I hit, I clocked 40, I'd had my three wishes. I had decided that the life that I was living was not the life that I wanted. Mm. And similar to Amy, you know, you're saying that you, you knew who you were. I, I was ready for the journey to find who I was. Mm. I, I was love 40. that. Yeah. Love and that. so when I look back at the, it was a time of, I was very fearful. I was afraid because you don't know what is to come. You know what you're leaving behind. Yeah. You don't know what's to come. So you're sort of in this straddled stratosphere. But I, I was so comfortable at that point to say, I am whatever comes, I necker in all of this, I'm ready to face it. That was, yeah, that 40 was a fuck off brilliant year for me. Oh, yeah. I love that. Yeah. There we go. I love that. <laughs> I've heard a lot of women say that 40 for them was like the age that they were like, yep. Like, I thought I figured it out before, but 40. 40 is when I got it. 
<laughs> I think, yeah. And, and you know, it's one of those things where exactly like NECA said, you're like, you know what? I know what I was doing. I know how I was, I was inconveniencing myself to, I don't know, like be part of this system or be part of these friendships. But today I don't really give a shit. <laughs> I don't care anymore. Yeah. Well, I look yeah. forward to getting there. That yeah, sounds that's great. Amazing. That's amazing. That's amazing. I'm sorry. No, Shalina, you, you oh. say it. No, you say it. We just want to thank you so much, Amy, for being here and having this conversation with us. I think it's so important to our listeners. And I think that you gave us so much and gave the listeners so much to think about and so much to harness and take with them wherever they're going. So we want to thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, and I, I honestly, I want to thank you guys for the work that you do. I'm so grateful that I've been in contact with you guys and I found you. I feel like the universe brought us together because oh. for years, I think at least two years, I've been talking about how, you know, there should be an organization that represents women and survivors of intimate partner violence and helps them through the system and navigate, you know, and I feel like, um, and I know that you guys are going to be huge and anything I can do to help, I'm always here. Yay. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> Uh, and so Amanda's going to tell you a little bit about our Patreon. Mm -hmm. Yes. In the description of the podcast, you'll find a link. You can go and subscribe and become a patron. Starts as little as $2 and works its way up. $2? I was waiting for that. Oh, just send, me, $2. send me the link. Yes, I will. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and yeah, you get, you get all these bonus features. You can make it work with your budget. If mm -hmm. you can, please help. <laughs> no, of course. Of course. I, I'm a huge fan of what you guys do and keep doing what you do. Like, I, I honestly love all of you guys. I think this is so needed and um, more people need to know about you guys and anything I can do to promote you, please let me know. Oh, we will, Amy. We will. And the, and the I'm here. Mutual. I'm the here. Thank you and, so much for, for showing up. And Thank if the you. listeners have any questions, just email us at podcast at womenatthecenter.com and we will see you all next time. Bye! Bye! Bye.